0: So today we jump into something new and uh, hopefully will be beneficial for all of us. And I tell you this from time to time, but just a reminder that whenever we gather together and I stand up here, the things that I say are really for me, you just get to hear it out loud. So, uh, hopefully, it's beneficial to you. I chew on it and pray on it and think about it all week long, and then you get the result of what God is saying to me and working on in my life. But to lead things off today, I want to talk about a book uh, by a guy named Bob Briner. Bob Briner was a, uh, um, he owned a, a television company actually in New York City. And the book is called Roaring Lambs. If you've ever read it, um, you probably appreciate it. And and there's a little paragraph we'll read today. Maybe we'll hear from it here over the next couple weeks as well. But Roaring Lambs is all about our influence as Jesus followers. It's about being salt and light, like uh, Melissa just read for us. It's about being the best person that you can be in your workplace. It's about being the best Christian boss that you can be for your employees. It's about being the best Jesus follower student that you can be for your teachers only partially to get good grades, right? There's, there's part of that. Okay? It's about being the best Christian mom and dad and the best Christian grandparents it's all of that wrapped up together. And Bob Reiner, what, he starts off talking uh, in his book, in chapter one, uh, and he he uses this quote. He says, the church is struggling. And he goes on to build this defense about how, you know, this can't be true, right? The church can't be struggling because he talks about, you know, we have these huge church buildings and there's big attendance in these church buildings and you know, we have Christian uh, radio programs and we all broadcast, and, and we have Christian TV and we have Christian colleges. They're full of, of Christians that are graduating ministers to share the gospel throughout the whole world, right? And there's Christian literature at our fingertips to give and share and give. And, and so, but Bob still contends that the church. And we talk about the church, he means the global church, Christianity, is still struggling. And he wonders why that is. And so, here's a quote that you can kind of mull over from the book, if I can find it. My post-it notes fell apart. Come on, there we go. He says, okay, Bob, he's talking to himself, I guess, things might not be perfect, But don't blame the church, right? Well, things are not even close to being perfect. And to a certain extent, I do blame the church. For despite all the fancy buildings, sophisticated programs, and highly visible presence, it is my contention that the church is almost a non entity when it comes to shaping culture in the arts, in entertainment, in media, in education and other culture-shaping venues of our country, the church has abdicated its role as being salt and light. What do you think about that? When you hear that quote, in the media, in entertainment, in education, all the aspects of the world, the church has all but abdicated its role in being salt and liked. Do you agree? At least to some extent, maybe? All right? Maybe you don't think the church has abdicated as much as it's been excommunicated in a lot of ways, it's been pushed away. And uh, here's the story, though. That quote, this book, was written in 1995, 30 years ago. A lot's happened in 30 years. I think we can all agree. In 1995, there was an internet, barely, okay? There was no Facebook, no Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, all that business, right? Okay? There were no uh, iPhones or Android phones talking about who had the better camera in their phone, right? We don't use phones anymore for phones. We use it for Computers that just happen to be able to answer phones that we don't ever answer anymore, do we? Amen. Amen. So um, 9-11, which is tomorrow, was six years away when he wrote this book. We've had seven presidential elections since he wrote this book that Christian culture could have influenced, maybe did. The Big 12 Conference had only 12 teams in it. And Colorado was one of those teams, and it's left, and now it's back again. Go figure. Crazy. There have only been three pastors at this church, and I'm one of them since 1995. So think about the last 30 years, if you have 30 years to think about. Think about the past 30 years. What's your thing? Like, one thing that you thought, well, that could have been influenced by the Christian culture, by the church, by Christians, by the gospel. What's one thing? And then match it up with that quote, right? It's my contention that the church is almost a non-entity when it comes to shaping culture. And then what is your part in that, because we are responsible to some extent, correct? So, we'll just let that sit in there. I'm not going to try and be in your face, because I'm responsible, because I've been there for the last 30 years as well. Bob Briner, he chose to entitle the book Roaring Lambs, and he does it on purpose, right? But I wonder why, because like lambs, right, we don't, they don't roar, for one, they're bah, you know, uh, their sounds that, that sheep make are terrible, right? If you've ever had sheep or listened to them, they're weird, okay? And um, But here's how he defines sheep, this primary character of his book. Culturally, we are lambs, talking about Christians themselves. They're meek, they're lowly, and he's, he's paralleling the two. Meek, lowly, easily dismissed, cuddly creatures that are fun to watch but never a threat to the status quo. It's time for those lambs to roar. That's his challenge. It's time for the lambs to roar. It's time for the church, more specifically individual Jesus followers, to start shaping culture that they live in. not. Now, we're in Emporia, you live here, we're not worried about Topeka or in Kansas City or Washington. In the culture that we live in, it's time that we start shaping that culture for the gospel. So that over the next 30 years, when this quote is read, it's no longer true. And the church is impacting culture in every single way possible. And we're not abdicating our right. And we're not being excommunicated. We're not being pushed out. We're influencing our culture for the gospel. And in the past 30 years, all the things that I listed that have happened and all the things that you're thinking about that have happened, how have they been impacted by the gospel? Think about it. It's a daunting challenge that's in front of us, right? Right? to stay ahead of the curve of what's going on in our world with the name of Jesus attached to it. What and who is the Christian influence on our culture right now? What influence does the gospel have in the social media posts that we make individually? What influence does the gospel have in the apps uh, on our phones that we use? And what influence does the good news of Jesus Christ have on our political elections? What about the things that you're thinking about, the, the, the life that you've lived? What influence does the gospel have on those things? Because here's the deal. All of the rest of culture... All of those things outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ has plenty of influence and has no problem using that influence to its own advantage and, and blanketing our world with things that are false, things that are immoral, things that are filthy, and using every possible method at its disposal to help promote that influence. And it's time for the lambs that Bob Briner was talking about, the Jesus followers, the disciples of Jesus. It's time for the lambs to roar. Amen. Okay. You're welcome for that one. I said amen. You're thinking it, I hope. Today, we're jumping into something that's new, but it's not so new. We've been talking about discipleship and being disciples and making disciples that are being more disciples and making more disciples for a while now, because it's important, right? Because discipleship should be important. If, uh, if you're a parent, it should be important. It should be important to grandparents. Discipleship should be important to employers, to neighbors, to best friends, it should be important to teammates, it should be important to brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins and all of those things, it should be important to church board members, it should be important to worship team members, it should be important to Sunday school teachers, to people that sit in the front row, amen, right here, all right, all three of you, nice job, it should be important to the people in the back row, yo, all right, and everybody in between, all right, I see y'all too, that's good, Okay? It should, discipleship should be important to people that come every week. And it should be important to people that come when they come. Okay? And you know what? I truly believe that discipleship is important to all of those people. All of the above. I believe that it is. In your heart of hearts, I believe that it is. But I also believe that not all of those people feel overly confident enough in their lives, in their Christian walk, to roar. Does that make sense? There's research that supports this. I don't know if you can read it. It's kind of small. You can probably read it up there. Um, this, this research comes from the Barna Research Group, and it, it's from 2022, but it spans 20 years of the same questions over and over again. And it says that 37% of Christians are not confident in discipling some other person. One other person. They're not confident in doing it. Okay? And I believe that some, not all, but some people, they also feel ill-equipped. That I, I just don't have all the tools that I need to disciple somebody. Okay? And in the same study, and this hurts the pastor's heart... 46%, 46%. Okay, total. 46%, nearly half of the people over a span of 20 years. That's a long time. Say they just have they don't they haven't even thought about discipling someone or no one has asked them to. That's the part that hurts me, okay? Cuz that's my job. I'm asking you. So you've been asked. 100% of people in this room and watching on the internets have been asked. You can't answer that question that way anymore, okay? You've been asked. You should disciple someone. Whether you feel equipped or not, you are. And we'll get to that in, in a moment, okay? But 46%, that's, and here's the deal, though. I believe that, that some might not understand that a lot of the roaring that we're talking about, this discipleship stuff is actually more doing than it is saying. Because the saying part, that's where people get, well, I, I'm not, I can't save my faith. I'm, that's hard for me. I get tongue-tied. I can't do that. But the doing part says way more than the saying part most of the time, right? The doing part is way more hypocritical than the saying part in the world's eyes all of the time. Okay, so of the 46%, you're probably doing more than you might think. Just, we can skew that stat just a little bit, I hope. But before we go any further, I keep saying the word disciple and discipleship. And I believe it's important that we always are on the same page in knowing what we're talking about. Agree? So, I don't want any glassy eyed things and I get it. I work with middle school kids every day now during football practice and I'll tell them something and I okay. And then they'll go in and they'll do the same thing wrong. And I said, I just told you that. And they'll say, okay. Did you understand what I said? No, I didn't. Well then why did you say okay? So that's why I'm saying this. Not that you're glassy eyed middle schoolers. However, I don't want you I want us all to be on the same page. So here's the simple definitions. Okay? A disciple Disciples are followers of Jesus. This is our context, right? In in the church world. In church language, we would be called Christians, right? So uh, that's a disciple, a follower of Jesus, someone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Discipleship is followers of Jesus that are practicing and living out their relationship with Jesus while. Sharing that life with others. Okay? That's the doing part. You're practicing and living that life with Jesus while sharing it with others. That's discipleship. That's as simple as you can make it, in my opinion. Okay? Basically, disciples are Jesus' followers. Discipleship are Jesus' followers doing life and sharing life with Jesus and with others. Does that help? That's where we're tracking, okay? Bob Reiner would call it roaring, roaring lambs. For Jesus followers to understand how to, to live life and to share life with Jesus and others, we should understand one thing first, okay? To share life as a Jesus follower, you need to be a Jesus follower. And, and that's, that's to say today that not everyone that comes to church on a Sunday morning at 1045 is a Jesus follower. Today. Maybe right here in this room. okay? Not, not everyone that comes to church on a Sunday morning is a Christian. There are some here today. There are, there are some in many churches across the globe today. They come to, ju- they come to church in search of something. And they may not even know what it is. They come in search of peace. They come in search of one thing that they're missing in life. Maybe they're not quite sure what that missing piece is, but they know that they miss it and they want it to be complete. And I know, and you might know, it's Jesus. But that's not up to you. It's up to them to understand. And we can't make a decision for other people. That's the, that's the hard part. If I could just... You know, wave a wand and say, you're a Christian. Things would be, uh, the world would be a lot better place, right? But we can't. That's not the way it works. So people come to church, that doesn't mean that they're Christians all the time. They may be seeking, and that's awesome. That's what I want. Personally, that's what I want. I hope that's what you want if you're a Christian too. And it's Jesus that they're seeking, and it's our job as Jesus followers, as disciples, to help everyone who is seeking to help them find. And we do that by the way that we are doing and saying and, and acting, correct? Through our discipleship. And he wants those, anyone who is a non-disciple, a non-Jesus follower, to be his follower today. And you're going to have that opportunity in just a, in just a moment, okay? Earlier, we heard, we read, um, uh, Melissa read from Matthew chapter 5, which is the beginning of a teaching that Jesus shared. And in the church world, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And um, if you were a, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, one of the, the 12 that followed him everywhere, one of his closer inner circle, this would have been called Rerun City, okay? Because most likely, Bible scholars agree on this uh, all across the board, the Sermon on the Mount was what Jesus taught all the time. Maybe not the whole thing all the time, but they were the bullet points of everything that Jesus wanted to get across to people. So if he went to Capernaum, he taught the stuff from the Sermon on the Mount. If he went down to Samaria, Sermon on the Mount stuff. If he went over to Jerusalem, Sermon on the Mount stuff. If he went up to Damascus, Sermon on the Mount stuff. If that's what he taught all the time. Maybe not entirely, right? But if he spoke, that's what he was speaking. And sort of like if you come to Emporia First Church of the Nazarene, at some point, um, if you come four weeks in a row, chances are, you're going to hear these words. They're going to be what? Extend grace, show love, serve others. You're going to hear that. Kind of let me down. Sorry. Man. Why would you hear those things? Because they're important to the fabric of who we are as a church. When we understand, because it's our vision on how we lead others into a knowing relationship with Jesus Christ, which is our mission. The same was true for Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. All of the content, all of the things that he talked about in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, which is where we find the Sermon on the Mount, written in its entirety. Because Matthew heard it so many times that he could probably quote it back to us verbatim, right? And he wrote it down. And the 12 disciples heard it over and over again. And that John probably could have wrote it down too. He just ran out of space. He said that, <clears throat> he said that at the end of, uh, of his uh, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of his gospel. There just wasn't enough space to write everything down, right? So he couldn't, write, he couldn't fit the Sermon on the Mount in his book. Matthew could. Because Jesus would have taught it over and over again. Because it needed to be said. And because for centuries, people had been taught you had to follow these rules and check these boxes in order to have a right relationship with God, and Jesus told them that it was all about your relationship with God first and your relationship with his people, how you treated them, how you loved them, how you spoke to them, because he wanted that to be important. And Jesus shows what a great preacher and teacher he was. A lot of times, if you uh, if you were to stand in his position, if you, if you were to come up here, if you ever have given a speech, if you ever are to... Um, to, to preach in front of somebody. Getting started is the hardest part. Every Monday when I start to prepare for the next sermon, getting started is the hardest part, okay? But Jesus had no problem getting started, okay? The first 12 verses of, the, of Matthew chapter 5, his introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, his, his got to grab them in right now kind of thing, is um, Jesus completely dismantling what has been taught for centuries in the Jewish um, faith, okay? And so that pretty much pulled them in, right? So they were on the edge of their seat. Well, they were probably standing or sitting in the grass, though they were on the edge of the grass. And And so that's a pretty good attention getter. And from there, he goes on for the next two chapters to tell them, this is how you live a life as a follower of Jesus, as a follower uh, of God, and this is what a relationship with him looks like, which brings us to the salt. It brings us to salt. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, um, if you, if you want to open it to your scripture, you can, um, but it, we're just, just the one verse today. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And if all you do is read that one verse by itself and that's it, it, it really has no context. If you don't know who said it and where it was said in Scripture, it makes it hard. But Jesus was the master of analogies, okay? Okay. He, he takes the first 12 verses and he totally annihilates all of the things that they thought they knew about how to have a right relationship with God, and then he pivots really fast and he starts using this analogy of salt. You are the salt of the earth, right? And if, if salt loses its saltiness, you're, it's basically worthless. You just throw it out, right? And throughout ministry, um, Jesus, he, used, he would teach in parables these um, earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. He would go, uh, he would do this in order to make the gospel um, something that people could grasp, make it tangible for them to feel and understand. Because for so long, religious leaders would keep the gospel and, um, and scripture at an arm's reach from people, so they didn't quite get it. And Jesus wanted, he, what he wanted was God's arms around people not at arm's length from people. And so he taught in ways that would get this message across to them. And so he used salt. And people would understand salt. In those days, salt was a valuable tool, right? It had value. You could pay people with salt. It it was a staple. You needed it to live in order to keep um, your food. Why? No refrigerators, right? It was a preservative. Okay? And when you went to hunt, you wanted to use all the meat, you salted it down. All right, it was a practice that was used for centuries, all the way up until you could freeze meat. right? And if you don't get the, the freezer door shut all the way, what happens to your meat? It, draw, it just kind of goes down the drain. But salt had a time stamp on it. And the people knew what happened to meat that that the salt had lost its effectiveness too, right? It made him sick. When that preservation wore off, it was no longer good. And you could tell. You could look at the meat, oh, that's not good, right? Just like you can look in your freezer and like, oh, that's been in there for a long time. Yeah. And so it was... uh, you know, salt was used for a lot more. It would cleanse wounds. They could use it to disinfect their houses, things like that. Much like it is today, if you look in cleaning solutions and medical supplies, it's 50% say it's all salt, right? And so all these people would have known what salt does. So Jesus uses salt as an analogy, and he wraps the church, his, his gospel message, into it. And when Jesus refers to Christians as salt, he's not talking about this little blue... Well, I didn't have a cylinder one. This is a box. It kind of disappointed me. But, the, you know, the little girl with the, uh, the blue cylinder with the little uh, umbrella on it, right? Or our salt shaker, right? We don't, this is what we think about when we think about salt. And we're not getting any, um, we're not getting any rights or royalties from Morton, so we're going to hide their logo. Um, but that's, that's what we have in mind. But it's not what Jesus had in mind. Jesus was thinking more along the lines of the characteristics of salt. What does salt do? Well, what does salt do if you get it in um, a cut? Hurts, stings, right? You remember back teen? You may remember back teen, You get a cut, you get up on the counter, and your mom pour back teen in that cut. Whoo. Woo! That was like salt water, basically, being squirted in your cut. It was, it was horrible, but it worked, right? Stinging, biting pain, but it cleansed your wound. It would preserve it. Salt also has the seasoning properties, right? And we put, on, we put it on our food, and it makes it taste different, not necessarily better. But if you put it on popcorn at the movie, mm-hmm, right? Absolutely, Okay, And the very first thing that those hater doctors take away from you when you have bad cholesterol and, and your health is bad is what? Yeah, because it's not always good for you. Everything in moderation, right? Um, the type of thing, that it salts the kind of thing that gets into all the cracks and all of the spaces of food. So much so that when it gets into your food, what does it do? It just becomes part of that food, it dissolves. And that's what Christians should be, right? That's what Jesus was saying that the Christians should be on the cutting edge of life just like the salt would be. That Christians should have boots on the ground every day using those characteristics. They should have all these same characteristics of salt the stinging and the biting and the getting the cracks in this cleansing effort, right? And Jesus makes this statement, not a suggestion, but this statement to everyone there in the Sermon on the Mount, that he, did, he didn't say for us to become salt. He said, if you, if you trust in me and you follow my ways, then you're going to become salt. He says, no, you are salt. You are the salt of the earth. So once you become a Jesus follower, you are equipped. You are empowered. And you are ready to share your saltiness. So the confidence part, that 37%, you're ready. You just have to allow the Holy Spirit to work through you. And that you become seasoned in your discipleship. And here's, here, here's where a lot of Jesus' followers, they hit the wall. Okay? I'll believe in Jesus. I will. I have no problem with that at all. That, that he died on the cross for me and he saved me from my sins. But the seasoned discipleship, sharing my faith, here's where we go back to our research, the study about our confidence of discipleship and not feeling equipped to do what, what Jesus called us to do, to go and make more disciples, right? And so this is uh, how we share our life with others as a Jesus follower, on how our concern for who we share jesus with but here's the thing that jesus was telling those people that came to hear the sermon on the mount that day and here's the thing that he's telling you and me today yes you are salt but just being salt is not enough because salt in the bottle is worthless what's the number one thing you want to put salt on just say it. What do you, what's the, what do you like to put salt on the most? Potato salad, Potato salad? <laughs> gross. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Homemade bread, Homemade bread. okay. Never tried that, okay. Yeah, French fries, popcorn, all those things. If I if I came to your house with with my own salt shaker and you gave me a big plate of French fries and I just slap my salt shaker right on top of it, how weird would you think I am? Weirder. I know you all think I'm weird. (laughs) It doesn't do any good if it just sits there in the bottle, right? Jesus is saying you're going to lose your flavor if you don't use what's in the bottle. Your impact, your influence, when you do not share the life that's in you and the life that was changed because of what the Holy Spirit's done in you. Bob Reiner, he gets in our face a little bit with his uh, quote a little more a little later in his book. Um, and so this is Bob saying it, not not Pastor Paul. So write him an email, okay? But <clears throat> he says he says this. Um, he explains it like this. But, when, uh, but the question is, what do we do? How do we act as salt in our world? The answer lies in the way the salt is used. Salt is both a seasoning and a preservative. As it, it seasons by adding taste and enhancing flavor. It preserves by cleansing and retarding spoilage. It, in both cases, the salt must be brought in contact With its object for its power to be realized. Sitting in the shaker does no good. It must be, it must, it might just be, it might as well just be thrown out. Okay? Sitting in the shaker, it does no good. Well, what does that mean for us today? If you're a Jesus follower, it it means that you are salt doesn't mean you're, you're going to become it. It might, doesn't mean that there's a level to be obtained. It means that you are. Jesus said that. That's a direct quote. You are seasoning and a preservative. And the only way to season and preserve is to come in contact with others, with your family, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, and your teachers, and your classmates, the dude at the gym who won't wipe down the bench, Right? The, the people at Walmart, in line, the cashiers. Oh, wait a minute, that's us. Um, our teammates, right? The people in the stands at the ball games. All of those people, they need seasoning and preserving. Followers of Jesus practicing and living out their relationship with Jesus while sharing that with others. Real people at a real church going through real stuff, not painted on faces, doing fake things while, nobody else, while everybody's here, and then struggling to keep it together when you're not here. People need to see that, not to judge or to um, make fun of or any of that. To help. That's the discipleship part, where we get to come alongside and to help and put our arm around our, our brothers and sisters and say, what do we need to do, right? That, could, th- that, that part, it can't be a secret. We can't keep it in the bottle. The number one way to be salt, Jesus calls us to be, is to teach his relevance. It's to demonstrate Jesus' relevance and to live out his relevance in our lives. That's how we use our influence to impact our culture, every aspect of our lives, wherever we go. We, if we don't do that, then we're just keeping the salt in the shaker. We just carry it around in our pocket, and the salt's worthless, and we might as well just throw it on the ground so everybody can step on it. If you're not a Jesus follower today, we talked about that, you can be. You you have the opportunity to be salt to people around you. You have the opportunity to share how Jesus changed your life with his saving grace. And I encourage you to do that today. And it's a simple act of faith. When when we pray, we're going to pray in just a few moments. We're wrapping up. And when we do, I just encourage you, you can come down here and pray at this altar. And if you want somebody to pray with you, they will. But you can do it on your own, just you and God. And you just need to tell, uh, pray to God. If you've never prayed before, that's okay. But just say, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that, and I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that he rose again on the third day To defeat those sins, and because of God's grace, your grace, I can be in heaven with you one day. I want Jesus to be my Savior. It's as simple as that. To be a Jesus follower. And then the next day, you get to get up and begin that discipleship every day, practicing and living and practicing and living and sharing life with others and doing this doing the same thing because we have a responsibility we're called to share this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to influence our culture for Jesus in a way that brings others to follow him not to push our agenda and not to get what we want but to preserve and to season with the words and life of Jesus who lived and died and defeated death for you and me That's his disciples standing up and roaring in our our world. Let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge that we have as Christians to impact our world for you. And we're thankful for the challenge we have in front of us to influence those closest to us as well as those that we just meet randomly from time to time with the message of the gospel and not knowing how many opportunities we have and what impact our words and our deeds might have on any one time and any one person. Help us, Father to be salt and to be light to those people, to our kids, to our parents, to our relatives, to those we come in contact with as we're driving, as we're at the store, while we're at school, while we're just hanging out with friends, whatever the case is, dear God, we just pray that you'll give us the strength that we need to, to season and preserve, to shape our culture in this world today for the gospel. To not be pushed out, not to be meek and cuddly little lambs, but to stand up and roar against the things that, that you would stand up against. But to do it in a way that you would do it, dear God. And Jesus stood up for himself and for the gospel in your name, Heavenly Father, over and over and over again in a way that impacted so many. Help us to be that in our world today. And for those that are coming to you today, God, I know that there there are so many that come to church seeking you. I pray that, Father, that that happens today, that, that they find you, and they begin to impact others for you as well. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at what, what it's like being disciples. How we can be light in our world. We talked about being salt and being light. Some goals for every disciple to have. And building this foundation right, Uh, that's solid, that can stand all kinds of different weather that we'll face, okay? Hope you're able to come back. Hope you're able to invite somebody to come back with you. And when I mean someone, I mean five, right? And uh, hope you're able to join us. Come uh, be at the shower with us. Uh, Grab some lunch and enjoy a shower in the Coleman's with some baby gifts. God love you. God bless you. Have a great day. It's going to get cooler tomorrow. And have a great week.